So welcome back from college, Haley. Anybody else wiping away tears after that song? Just me? Gosh, man. And then my Kleenex box, somebody stole my Kleenex, so now I'm just going to be snot. Somebody bring me a Kleenex? Like, seriously. I don't know who, but anyone? Hey, there you go. I like it. Thank you. I'm going to turn off my mic. You know, for me, in that song, um, I just think, you know, I, I don't know how people do it that don't have Christ. I really don't. Even just in the midst of our circle this morning, praying before the service, and people just sharing about people they know, things people are going through, I'm just like, man, I don't know how people do it, honestly. I can barely get by with him, <laughs> I feel like sometimes. I don't know how people do it without him. And we're going to be talking about some, some just really, really critical stuff. I mean, everything we've been talking about this series is so important. It's definitely something that doesn't get talked about near enough in the church. And um, I love that we just sang a couple songs ago, um, Here's My Heart, Speak What Is True. We've been talking about the lies of the enemy, and I just want us to hear what's true today. So that's my prayer. Um, The original Cinderella story was written in 1857 by a couple of German brothers, the Grimm brothers. And it's really a very short story. Hollywood's kind of made it into a feature film. But in the original text, sometimes in the movies they get this different, but in the original text, the prince actually goes home to home in the kingdom looking for the maiden whose uh, foot fits into the glass slipper. And so, of course, he goes to Cinderella's house, and he tries the shoe on the two evil stepsisters, but to no avail. And then the prince asks the father, he says, have you no other daughters? And he says, no, said the man. There is a little stunted kitchen wench, which my late wife left behind her, but she cannot be the bride. Awesome dad, huh? man. So the prince says, hey, send for her anyways. But then the stepmother hops in and says, oh no, she is much too dirty. She cannot show herself. But the prince absolutely insisted on it. And Cinderella had to be called. And we all know how the rest of the story goes from there. Um, And, you know, up to that point in the story, Cinderella has just been kind of laughed at and mocked and and belittled and put down and, and just time and again just told how worthless she is. But the prince insisted that Cinderella be allowed to step out of the shadows. And for the first time, she's kind of revealed as her true self, the true bride of the prince. And I love this story because it forces all of us to consider what is our true identity? Who are we? When we enter into a relationship with Christ, what is fundamentally changed in us? How are we different? Because you see, I think a lot of Christians live under this kind of false assumption, really it's a lie, 
that really all we are is just forgiven versions of our old self. That really all we are is just forgiven versions of our old self. But the Bible says that we are much more than that. In John chapter 3, Jesus encounters this religious leader who comes to him and, and has some questions for Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, listen, you will never understand my kingdom. You will never understand my way that we've been talking about this whole school year unless you're born again. You have to start completely over from scratch. Becoming a follower of Christ isn't just about tweaking a few things. It's not just, you know, well, I've kind of had some faulty thought patterns in my life, so I just need to think better. Or I just need to quit doing some of these old habits that I've had in my life. I just need to get rid of those. That'll make God happy. Or or I just need to become a better version of myself. Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You see, in Christ, we are new creations, born again. We are completely different entities than what we used to be. Something unbelievable has transpired in our souls on a spiritual level. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says this, <clears throat> I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give to them a heart of flesh. You see, guys, things are not what they seem. And we are not what we seem. In Christ, we are new creations, born again. God has given us a new heart that longs to to, to please him and obey him. He's transforming our minds so that we will desire his good and perfect will. And, And every day he's transforming, he's changing us. We've looked at this verse several times. He's turning us into Christ with ever-increasing glory. Believe it or not, that is who we are. And it can often be very hard to see ourselves and others in our true identity, but people missed it in Christ too. In the passage that we just looked at in 2 Corinthians, if you can put that slide back up there, Paul is basically saying, you know what, we've once viewed Christ kind of in a worldly view. And what he means by that, it was like, you know, here's this carpenter's son from this backwater village, Nazareth, kind of off the beaten path. Here's this guy that we grew up around. You know, we went to school with, we went to synagogue with, we, we played in the streets with. And now he's grown up and he's attracting all these crowds and he's healing these diseases and he's, he's preaching this new message with power and authority and all these people are coming out of the woodworks. And for the people that, that had known him for so long, growing up with him, they're just like, this just all seems like a little bit much. Like, he still looks kind of like the same guy that just was in Nazareth a few weeks ago, right? On the outside, he looked the same. 
I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. It's page 892. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And really, for the first time, Jesus was revealed for who he truly was in all of his heavenly glory. But only a select few got the sneak peek. And it kind of begs the question, and I want to ask this question of you, is, is why didn't Jesus just go around like that all the time? I mean, wouldn't that have made it easier for people to, to believe in who he says he was if he was walking around and, you know, a thousand beams of light coming out of him? And he'd be like, oh, okay, there's something different about that guy. Why did he choose to kind of hide his glory a little bit, veil it at times. What do you think? Yeah, Brady? I think it's pretty easy to have faith in something like that. It's pretty hard. It's a choice that you can make to have faith in something that you have to believe in. Yeah. Great. Yeah, he said it'd be pretty easy to have faith in someone walking around like that, right? Much greater leap to think, oh, the carpenter's son from Nazareth is God. Good. Any other thoughts? What's that? He became man just like us. So if he was just walking around in his glory all the time and didn't experience and, and endure the, the things that we, the suffering and the pain and the life uh, that we do, um, yeah, he wouldn't be able to connect with us as much. Great. Yeah. Yep. Good. Yeah. So she was saying in the Old Testament they prophesied about who Jesus was, the things he was going to do, and so he had to come in his his human form and do the things that were kind of set out for him. Okay. So, and really, I think the fact that he walked around as just kind of a normal guy on the outside is what makes it so amazing, right? Because that's what it's like for us as well. You see, you have this Peter guy, this guy who was a perpetual screw-up as a disciple. And, and after Jesus is resurrected and then ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit, and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is transformed. And then you see him in Acts chapter 3, and here's this guy who had just disowned Christ on several different occasions, and he's standing up in front of a group of thousands in Jerusalem boldly proclaiming the gospel, the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says that day 3,000 people were saved. They came to know Christ. This was not the same Peter from a few weeks before. And then we, we have this guy, Paul, that wrote most of the New Testament, and he was a murderer of Christians. And then God got a hold of his heart, and he said, you're going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel 
to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And he is made into a new creation. And he goes out and he shares the gospel in these cities and, and they come to know Christ. And then he writes these letters back to these churches that are in our Bible now to encourage them and listen to how he addresses his audience. Ephesians 1.1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, do you think that the people in Ephesus always acted like saints? Do you think they were always faithful? I doubt it, right? They were flawed like us. But Paul is reminding them of their new identity in Christ. He's saying, listen, guys, God sees you as saints. He sees you as faithful. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus in Colossae. You are something more than you think you are. You are saints. You are holy. You are faithful. That's your true identity. Come out of hiding. Jesus, right, he looked out at his followers just like he would if he was here today and he would say to you, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. That's who you are. Not because you did it or you thought that's who you were, but because the God who created you and saved you says that's who you are. Live from it. Guys, our story doesn't begin in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man. Our story begins in Genesis chapter 1, created in the image of God. That's where our story begins. So why don't we see ourselves for who we truly are? You know, one of the easiest things for me to do as a pastor is to convince someone that they're sinful. I don't really have to even convince anyone, right? Because we all know how flawed we are. Our pride, our selfishness, our greed, our jealousy, our apathy, all of those things are on display for all to see on a pretty regular basis, right? On the other hand, one of the hardest things for me to do as a pastor is to get people to believe in the glory that's inside of them and to live from that glory, to get them to believe that that they are a new creation (laughs) and that there's goodness that dwells in them because of Christ's presence in their hearts. He's made you good. Guys, we don't see ourselves for who we truly are because we have a very effective enemy. And his job is to get us to believe that we are not the people that God says that we are. He wants to keep us in chains. He wants to keep us locked away in the attic like Cinderella. Our glory hidden. His assault on us is constant. You're a phony. If people knew the things that you did and thought in secret, 
they would be disgusted. And he hits us. And he's always whispering to us. Or worse, he sends people to beat us down. And sometimes it's family and friends. I remember when I first became a Christian in high school, my junior year, and I had all of these friends who liked the old me. And so anytime that they saw me mess up, you know, maybe because I used to cuss like a sailor, so I'd slip a cuss word out or I'd just be a jerk, which I'm prone to do pretty easily, they'd be like, yeah, see, you haven't changed, right? You're still the same old guy. This Jesus thing is just kind of a phase for you. And I was getting beat down by people that were supposed to be my friends. Guys, we don't see ourselves for who we truly are because we don't know God's word. And and part of that is because our culture has changed so much. The word of God used to be like the only book people had in their house. It was everything. And now we live in this culture where it's such a rare thing for people to know God's word. And even as I talk to Christians, you know, and I'm talking with them about their life, and, well, I'm praying, I want God to do something different. I'm like, well, you spend any time in his word? No. Might want to change that. (laughs) He might want to speak to you through his word if you'd give him a chance. And so because we don't know God's word very well, we see everything through human eyes. And and the appearance on the outside. And we don't see with the eyes of our heart like God prays for us to. And so then we we don't hear the truth about our identity. And when we don't, it's easy to see our flesh and all of our flaws and to hear the voice of the enemy chirping at us all the time and to take those things as truth. And Satan always attacks our identity. It's exactly what he did with Christ, right? It's, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested by the enemy, and Satan tested him in three different times, and he, he began always with this sentence, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then do this or that. Now, keep in mind The scene before that in the Bible is Jesus being baptized and the heavens opened and the voice of God said, this is my son. So Jesus knew exactly who he was. So he wasn't fallen for, you know, the bait of the enemy there. Jesus knew his exact identity. Do we? Because Satan will hit us again and again and again to try to get us to believe that we're not that special. That maybe all this Christianity stuff we've been believing is really just a bunch of hocus pocus. Maybe we're incapable of ever really changing. We don't see ourselves for who we truly are Because as the church, we don't call out that identity in one another near enough. Maybe it's hard to remind others of who they truly are when we struggle to believe it ourselves. When we don't feel like more than conquerors, it's hard to tell other people that's what they are. 
We were in our small group the other night, and we were noticing how much easier it is to criticize people than to lift them up. And we talked about like calling out the good things in people sometimes is kind of awkward. It's kind of awkward for the person doing it, and sometimes it's kind of awkward for the person hearing it. You feel me? And so instead of just pushing through the awkwardness, we just kind of decide not to do it. And the enemy knows how uncomfortable that can be sometimes to praise others or to receive praise. And so he just is like, yeah, that probably would be kind of weird. So let's just not do that. And we miss these opportunities to speak powerful things into people's lives about who they are and help them to come out of hiding. When my son Zach was little, the movie The Lion King, <laughs> I love it when my kids like hear their name, they're just like, oh God, what is he going to say? <laughs> the movie The Lion King had just come out <clears throat> like the year before. So we had it on VHS, right? Old school. And Zach, he had this spot on the couch that he would sit at and he would suck his pacifier and he had a sippy cup of chocolate milk. And he would pull on his bangs when he watched the movie and just sit there. And he would watch Lion King ad nauseum. I mean, I got so sick of that movie, literally. I felt like I watched it hundreds of times. But there is some really redeeming value about the Lion King because really the story parallels the gospel a lot. And so let me bring you back up to speed if you've forgotten the plot. There's the Lion King, Mufasa, okay, And he has this son, Simba. And Simba kind of gets caught in this stampede of animals, kind of caused by Mufasa's evil brother, Scar, who wants to be the king. And so Mufasa has to come and, and rescue Simba from that stampede and get him out of the way. But in the midst of it, he ends up dying. And Scar comes to the little Simba, who's just right there next to his dead father, and he kind of just basically says, hey, the reason that he's dead is, is because you killed him. Because you got yourself caught up in this mess. Now he's dead. And Simba, in his youth, just kind of takes that lie for truth. And Scar says, the best thing for you to do is just to run away and never come back. And so that's what Simba does. And so Simba, in another land, grows up far away from his true identity and who he is. And he kind of brings on this other identity as kind of this slacker that hangs out and sings Hakuna Matata all the day, you know, and life is good. And, and in the meantime, while that's going on, the pride land is suffering under Scar's rule. And isn't that the way it always is? Is that when we settle for a counterfeit identity, the people around us suffer. That's where we're going to pick up the story.
That's good. There's so many really powerful things about that scene. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me was in order to go and find out his identity, like he had to go through this very scary part of the jungle. You could kind of see he was kind of hesitating. I don't want to go there. And I think that's so true of us a lot of times too, is that it's kind of scary sometimes, the unknown of how do we live as this new person that the Bible says we are. But Mufasa says, you are more than you have become. Remember who you are. You are my one true son. I'm sorry, you are my son and the one true king. Remember. And so in that moment, Simba does believe and he heads back to the pride land. But now there's a battle to be fought. Because while Simba was off doing his thing, the enemy was really entrenched in the pride land. And so now he's got to kind of win back ground that he's lost. And it wasn't going to be easy. Jesus had a way of calling out people's true identity. Long before Peter stood up and delivered that message and 3,000 people came to know, to know the Lord, Peter was standing with Jesus one day, and Peter's name means rock. And Jesus says, you know what? On this rock, I'm going to build my church. James and John, these two fishermen, brother, followers of Christ, long before they became these bold guys who proclaimed the gospel, they were the ones that were constantly arguing about, hey, who do you think's the, like, the best disciple? You think it's us? I think so. You know, they bring their mom in. Don't you think my sons are the best disciples? I mean, these guys. Long before they did anything great, Jesus said, you know what, your guys' your guys' nickname is the Sons of Thunder. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? And I'm sure the people at the time were like, Sons of Thunder? Like, really? Come on, let's wrestle for it right now, right? It's ridiculous. And those, those proclamations by Jesus probably seemed really far-fetched at the time. But over time, as you read the book of Acts and you see the church beginning, you see Peter, James, and John living into their true identity. These guys were heroes. It's hard learning to live from your glory. There's a certain fear that we're not going to measure up. And John Eldridge, in his book, Waking the Dead, he talks about that fear. He says, the different reason we fear our own glory is that once we let others see it, they will have seen the truest us, and that is nakedness indeed. We can repent of our sin, we can work out our issues, but there is nothing to be done about our glory. It's so naked, it's just there, the truest us. It's an awkward thing to shimmer when everyone else around you is not. To walk in your glory with an unveiled face when everyone else is veiling his. And that is why living from your glory is the only loving thing you can do. You cannot love another person from a false self. You cannot love another while you are still hiding. How can you help them to freedom while you remain captive? You cannot love another unless you offer her your heart. It takes courage to live from your heart. And that's the bottom line for me. Living from my true identity is, is important for me personally. Um, 
you know, to reach my full potential as a Christian, but more important is how it impacts others around me. Because the animals in the pride land were suffering when Simba was settling for a counterfeit identity. Who in your life right now is suffering because you're settling for something less than who you really are? And this book, Waking the Dead, if you haven't read it, it's one of my favorites. I was reading this book while we were starting our church. And I remember reading some of this stuff and thinking, oh man, I want to be a part of a community one day that, that as a regular habit is calling out the glory in others, helping people understand who they truly are and understanding more importantly the ripple effect that that would have on their life their relationships, and the world around them. You are much more than just a forgiven version of your old self. You are a new creation, born again. You are a son and a daughter of the King of Kings. And when you live from your true identity, everyone around you benefits So how do we do that practically? I mean, it's one thing, hey, live from your glory, right? Let your light shine. How? Like, what does that mean? What do I do? Some of you that have been Christians for a while, help us out. What does that look like when you wake up in the morning and live your day? Give us some insider tips, please. How do we do that? Yes. For me, God's calling on my life is to go places that I'm very uncomfortable going, carrying the message and giving away everything that God has freely given to me. God didn't give me his life for me to hang around well people. He wants me to go to sick people and save their lives too and give them what he has given me freely. Yeah. And so sometimes because we have something to offer, we have to be in places where People need what we have to offer, <laughs> right? And so, so we got, we've got to go to places where that glory can be displayed. We've we got to go to the darkness so the light can shine, right. right, and make a difference. We're just hanging out in the light all day. We kind of forget who we are. That's a great point. Yes? Yeah. Or the encouragement or the forgiveness because it is really not coming from you. It's coming from you. Yeah. So every morning or every day, we need to get in touch with the fact that we have a powerful God in us. And we have to acknowledge that. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. We've got to hammer those truths into us so that when we go out, that that's where we're drawing our strength from. Guys, in the Old Testament, if you read it, time and again, the, God tells the people, remember, 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 remember. Write it on your hands, your forehead. Put it on the doorpost when you walk out the door. 
do whatever you have to to not forget who you are, who I am, the things that I'm about, the things that I can do in your life, the things that I can use you to do in the lives of others. We can't just go from Sunday to Sunday, from Bible study to Bible study, once in a while, hearing these truths and thinking that it's going to play out in our lives. Daily, we have to come to him. We have to, as brothers and sisters, surround one another and call that out in each other. Be with people who are going to remind you who you are so you can take that out into dark places. Guys, I, I need help, personally, to live like this. Because I need to remember that it's not just about me doing the right thing so that that happens. That's part of the equation. But another big part of the equation we're trying to get across to you in this series is that there's an enemy that does not want that to happen. You cannot ignore him. You have to remember that you are in a battle and you have to act like it. You have to pray like it. You have to surround yourself with other people who are going to put up their shields and help protect you. That's the life that God has called us to live, not the life you just decide that you want to do and call it Christian. If you do that, you get beat up a lot. So when we come to the table today, it's a reminder for us of what Christ has done for us and the fact that because he died and rose again, that he is in us. When we actually take that bread and consume it, it's a reminder to us that he is here. He's filling us up, preparing us. Our identity is him. Everything that's true about Christ is true about us. It's who we are. I want to challenge you this week to call out the glory in other people. Because when you do, you're reminding yourself who you are. We're going to have some time of silence before we take communion. The ushers will dismiss you after that time to come up and, and take communion. There's gluten-free bread over here as well, in case that applies to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these reminders God, the world needs the glory that's inside of us. As we saw in the movie clip, Mufasa wasn't alive anymore, but he was alive in Simba. God, you are alive in us. You've chosen to limit yourself to displaying your power in this world through us. We are your plan. There's no plan B. We are your ambassadors. If we don't do our job, then the word doesn't get out. Heavenly Father, help us. Speak to us. Speak what is true to our hearts and help us to do it for one another.